Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, May 12th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Melissa Topshire. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Pakistan's Supreme Court says Imran Khan's arrest was illegal. An Israeli strike kills another high-level Islamic Jihad commander. Google unveils its AI-powered search engine. The U.S. transfers seized Russian funds to Ukraine. Trump stirs controversy with a CNN town hall. The House GOP releases a memo on Biden family foreign deals. Muharrem Ince withdraws last minute from Turkey's upcoming elections. Nicaragua orders the closure of the Red Cross. A Texas man who shot a Black Lives Matter protester is sentenced to 25 years in prison. And a report finds 71 million people have been internally displaced worldwide by war and disasters. In our top story, Pakistan's Supreme Court says Imran Khan's arrest was illegal. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, BBC News, The Telegraph, NPR Online News and The Guardian. Coming two days after his arrest on corruption charges by paramilitary troops prompted protests and deadly clashes, Pakistan's Supreme Court ruled Thursday that the arrest of former Prime Minister Imran Khan was unlawful. The three-judge panel ruled the arrest was invalid as it was conducted inside a court complex while he underwent biometric tests. Video footage showed paramilitary forces seizing Khan and dragging him from inside court premises and whisking him away in an armored vehicle. He told reporters he was hit in the head and bled. According to his lawyers, the 70-year-old former cricket player will remain in a police safe house for his protection, though he will be allowed to be accompanied by family members. Chief Justice Umar Atta Bandial told Khan that his arrest was invalid, therefore the whole process needs to be backtracked, also urging the former prime minister to ask his supporters to remain peaceful after clashes across several major Pakistani cities left 10 dead and 2,000 arrested. The release of Khan, who was friendly with the military while in power, but has since accused it of colluding against him, is a significant win for his Pakistan Tehreek-e-Insaf party, or PTI. However, five other party leaders were arrested Thursday on charges of inciting arson and violent protests under a well-thought-out plan for threatening peace. If convicted in his corruption case, Khan could be disqualified from public office for life. The legal battle comes as Pakistan deals with economic turmoil and mounting violence by Islamist militants, eroding confidence in the security forces. Thank you, Eric. And on this program, we separate the facts from the narrative spins. We'll begin this round of spins with narrative A from Vox. Khan has been mired in controversy and scandals for years, and the mounting evidence is too much to ignore. Khan has used his power to subvert democracy, including his attempt to dissolve parliament to escape the no-confidence vote that ousted him. Now he's using his platform to bring Pakistan to the brink of civil war by urging his supporters to commit violence. Khan is a danger to Pakistan, and his corruption is finally being exposed. Narrative B comes from Middle East Eye. While in office, Imran Khan tried his best to support the military while also ridding the government of its corrupt ruling elites. Unfortunately, when he started to notice that the armed forces were embedded in the toxic system, Pakistani troops quickly turned against him in the form of Tuesday's arrest. This is a small win for Khan, his supporters, and democracy, but the opposition leader is still fighting an uphill battle against a dangerous ruling class. 
Wasn't Khan like a um, DC supervillain? Maybe so. Is the Jungle Book? Oh, the Jungle Book. Okay. Familiar. The Jungle Book. He was the he was the uh, villain tiger. The only Khan I'm really familiar with is Shaka Khan. Well, that's a good one too. <laughs> <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org/pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. An Israeli strike kills another high-level Islamic Jihad commander. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, ABC News, The Times of Israel, Al Jazeera, and The Wall Street Journal. An Israeli strike early on Thursday reportedly killed the head of Palestinian Islamic Jihad's, or PIJ, rocket-launching force and two other militants in an apartment in the southern Gaza Strip city of Khan Yunis. The Israeli military said his deputy was also killed in a separate strike. The deaths of the commander, identified as Ali Ghali, and his deputy are the fifth high-level PIJ senior leaders to be killed since Tuesday. Thursday's strikes reportedly killed 10 civilians, including six children. PIJ stated that Ghali was in charge of the group's rocket squad and a member of its paramilitary wing's decision-making body. The group has said it will only accept a ceasefire if Israel agrees to halt targeted killings of its fighters. Meanwhile, the Israeli military reported that Ghali was responsible for directing and carrying out rocket fire toward Israel, including the barrages in recent days, adding that Ghali was considered a central figure in the organization and dealt with its routine management. Israeli airstrikes have continued into Thursday with 29 Palestinians, including PIJ fighters, being killed and more than 90 being injured since this round of escalation began over two days ago. The Israeli military claimed that Palestinian militants have fired more than 500 rockets at southern and central Israel since Wednesday, and in that time has hit at least 133 targets in Gaza via airstrikes, including rocket and mortar launching sites, and the militants who were preparing to use them. Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. We have a couple of spins that have been generated. The first one is a pro-Israel narrative coming from Jerusalem Post. Unfortunately, it seems that another Gaza war is on the horizon. Israel, which has always restrained itself to avoid unnecessary death, will respond aggressively if Palestinian Islamic Jihad attacks Israeli civilians and cities. Those killed in the recent strikes were high-ranking PIJ terrorists, and their elimination was necessary to ensure Israeli security. Indeed, Israel has the right to defend itself from Palestinian terror. And the Middle East Eye brings us a pro-Palestine narrative. Yet again, it looks like Israel is preparing for another ruthless war on Gaza, as it seeks to engage in conflict by recklessly murdering Palestinians. Israel not only killed PIJ commanders, but their families as well, not to mention an innocent doctor and his family. Emboldened by international silence after killing more Palestinians last year than in any other calendar year since the Second Intifada, the occupation is becoming even more violent. Why can't they just kiss and make up? That's a... <laughs> you know, I wish it were that easy. I do too. In tech news, Google unveils an AI-powered search engine. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Reuters, Al Jazeera, Forbes, and Financial Times. Google on Wednesday announced plans to infuse its search engine with more advanced artificial intelligence technology, three months after Microsoft's Bing search engine began using similar technology. Google, whose shares jumped 4% on Wednesday, 
unveiled the Search Generative Experience, or SGE, at its annual I.O. conference in Mountain View, California. It can respond to open-ended questions while still listing links to websites. SGE will still look and act like Google's usual search bar, but if it detects that AI can be used to answer a question, that response will be at the top of the page. For example, if searching what the weather is in a city, it will show the forecast while also recommending clothing to wear and the links to sites where it found such information. The AI search, available in a few weeks to U.S. users who apply for a waitlist, will be marked as experimental, with Google advising that AI-generated results will be more factual than conversational. After Microsoft announced in February that Bing would integrate OpenAI's GPT technology, shares of Google's parent company, Alphabet, dipped. Google is reportedly attempting to catch up. This comes as Google also announced that BARD, its chatbot that's only been available to people on a waitlist, will now be available to everyone in 180 countries in multiple languages. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, beginning with a narrative A from CNET. Google, which has already been using AI technology to bolster many search functions, is now breathing life into its widely popular search engine. Best of all, Google has decided to increase its focus on providing factual answers over having users interact with a gimmicky chatbot. It's going to be difficult to cut into Google's share of the search market. Daily Mail gives us Narrative B. Don't celebrate the continuation of Google's reign over the search world just yet. First, Google must figure out how to maintain its revenue flow if it's going to be pushing down the paid-for-text responses in favor of its AI response. Second, Google suffered a wonky rollout of BARD in February, which cost it big time. So we don't know how well SGE is going to perform until it's put into action. And we have our first nerd narrative of the show, saying there's a 50% chance that Google will be supplanted as the top search engine in the U.S. by market share by April 2041. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Eric, what's the last thing you Googled? The last thing that I Googled? Um, the last thing that I Googled, I think, was the location of a Starbucks. Well, I, I guess an AI would help you with that. It would probably, you know, if it, I guess with the new SGE search engine, if I search the closest Starbucks, it'll probably show me where the Starbucks is and then ask me what I'd like to order. There you go. Or it's going to just go into your recent orders and then it's going to order the thing that you order the most for you. You're right. It'll probably go that extra step. I want to get on the wait list. Wait no more. The U.S. transfers seized Russian funds to Ukraine. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Financial Times, Al Jazeera, Reuters, the Associated Press, BBC News, and Al Arabia. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland on Wednesday approved the transfer of millions of dollars worth of assets seized from Russian oligarch Konstantin Malafayev to aid war-ravaged Ukraine. In a statement, he said, while this represents the United States' first transfer of forfeited Russian funds for the rebuilding of Ukraine, it will not be the last. The Justice Department last April charged Malafayev with violating sanctions imposed on Russia after it invaded Ukraine, saying he was one of the primary sources of funding for pro-Russian separatists in Crimea. In February, Garland authorized Malafayev's funds for use in Ukraine to remediate the harms of Russia's unjust war. The Russian government criticized the move, saying the U.S. had illegally stolen the money and that the decision would backfire on Washington. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said the move undermined the confidence of investors and owners of assets that were connected with America. 
adding that the U.S. should face consequences for this decision. Though it's unclear when the funds would become available or how Kyiv would use them, the transfer comes as G7 finance ministers gather in Japan for a three-day summit starting Thursday to discuss ways to support Ukraine, pressure Moscow to end the conflict, and prevent Russia from circumventing sanctions. Meanwhile, the UK has confirmed it will supply Ukraine with storm shadow missiles, which have a range of over 250 kilometers or 155 miles, to strike well behind the front lines. The UK Defense Secretary Ben Wallace has said the missiles will give Ukraine the best chance of defending itself and allow Ukraine to push back Russian forces based on Ukrainian sovereign territory. Elsewhere, the chief of Wagner refuted President Volodymyr Zelensky's claims that Ukraine's counteroffensive has not yet begun because Kyiv needs more time and weapons to maximize gains, alleging Zelensky was being deceptive and that Ukrainian forces had started their counterattack and were, unfortunately, partially successful. Melissa, thank you for the rundown. We have several spins beginning with an anti-Russian narrative, and it comes from Washington Post. Sanction evasion is a crime which is why the U.S. is right to prosecute Russian oligarchs, helping Putin continue the illegal war. Using frozen Russian assets to counter the cost of Moscow's destruction would show Putin he cannot economically ruin Ukraine and the West. Here's a pro-Russian narrative from the Global Times. U.S. sanctions against Russia are illegal. The transfer of funds to Ukraine is a high-profile political stunt to suppress Russia, the U.S. de facto enemy in the economic sphere, and is aimed at forcing Ukraine to buy weapons from the U.S. to feed America's military-industrial complex. Al Jazeera brings us an establishment-critical narrative. It's hypocritical to impose sanctions on Russia for invading Ukraine, but not on the U.S. for invading Iraq for equally unjustified reasons, or on Israel for invading and annexing Arab lands. And we have another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 5% chance that Russia will use nuclear weapons against Ukraine before 2024 if the U.S. provides Ukraine with any fighter aircraft. Turning our attention back to the United States as Trump's CNN town hall stirs controversy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Daily Wire, BBC News, Daily Caller, Independent, and Fox News. Former President Donald Trump attended a CNN town hall in New Hampshire on Wednesday night, in which he took questions from the public and rhetorically sparred with the moderator, Caitlin Collins. The town hall covered a wide range of topics, including his claims of voter fraud during the 2020 presidential election, the January 6th riots, a civil court ruling that he battered and defamed author E. Jean Carroll, the economy, energy independence, the debt ceiling, the Second Amendment, the border, abortion and the war in Ukraine, among others. In the first minutes of the town hall, Trump again claimed that ballot boxes were stuffed and voter fraud was widespread, calling it a, quote, rigged election, which generated pushback from Collins, who said that such claims lacked hard evidence. Regarding January 6th, Trump claimed that he had offered to send 10,000 National Guard troops to protect the Capitol and that Vice President Mike Pence did not deserve an apology from him as Pence, quote, did something wrong. Regarding the economy, when asked about lowering economic costs, Trump replied, drill, baby, drill. CNN received a notable amount of backlash for platforming Trump from other outlets, pundits, and even its own anchors, with the network's Jake Tapper criticizing the former president for calling a black law enforcement officer a thug and for comments regarding the E. Jean Carroll case. 
Trump is leading the polls for the Republican primary and is predicted to likely be the Republican nominee for the election. The town hall marked Trump's first appearance on CNN since the 2016 presidential election. Thank you, Eric, for those facts. And as you might have guessed, we have some opposing narratives on the matter. The Democratic narrative comes from CNN. Trump is continuing his past policies and strategy, which hinges on deflection, lies, and rhetorical aggression. The former president showed off all of his unpresidential qualities, such as his tendencies toward racist and sexist remarks. What is truly worrisome is that Trump's crude rhetoric is still palatable to some voters, and that could mean he has a decent chance in 2024. And a pro-Trump narrative coming from Breitbart. Trump's town hall appearance was a fantastic opportunity for the former president to show off that he's still got it. Besides the fact that he completely dominated the event, he was able to broadcast his message to a wide audience. Trump, who was both on the defensive and the offensive, did an amazing job of fielding questions and pushing back against CNN's woke agenda. And there's another nerd narrative saying there's a 67% chance that Donald Trump will be the Republican nomination for the 2024 U.S. presidential election. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In our next story, the House GOP releases a memo on the Biden family foreign deals. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, The New York Post, Fox News, and Newsweek. U.S. House Republicans on Tuesday released alleged records of $10 million in payments received by members of the Biden family from foreign entities, with Oversight Committee Chair James Comer claiming they used the family name to enrich themselves and that the president was, quote, involved. Weeks after then-Vice President Joe Biden met with Romanian President Klaus Johannes in 2015, Rob Walker, Hunter Biden's business partner, received $3 million from Romanian business executive Gabriel Popovicu. He reportedly then wired $1 million to Hunter, his business associate James Gillian, and his brother's widow Haley, with whom Hunter had a romantic relationship. Hunter and James Biden also allegedly received at least $4.8 million from Chinese company CEFC, which played a role in China's Belt and Road Initiative in 2017 and 2018. The former foreign minister of Serbia and president of the UN General Assembly, Vuk Jeremic, appeared to have helped connect the Biden family with the company. While running to head the UN in 2016, documents show Jeremic emailed Hunter Biden and a business associate, Eric Schwerin, asking to meet with Vice President National Security Advisor Colin Call related to the election. In a follow-up, he said, My meeting with Colin did not last very long, but didn't go too bad, I think. The memo adds that Hunter's company, Hudson West 5, among more than 20 companies created by the family during Biden's vice presidency, received a $24 million wire from Yi Zhengming related to the CEFC partnership, with the energy company later wiring 100000 to Hunter's Owasco PC. Beyond the wire transfer records, the receipts provided do not show any direct results from the business dealings. However, the memo argues that the pattern of behavior engaged in by the Bidens and their Chinese counterparties signals an attempt to layer companies and cloud the source of money. Thank you, Melissa, for those facts. Our first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from New York Times. In Romania, Hunter Biden, a lawyer, was paid for legal services to defend Popovicu, but was unsuccessful. Furthermore, none of this money went to Joe Biden himself, and no evidence of any quid pro quo has been revealed. 
After all the hyperbole from the GOP, what we know is that some Biden family members pursued international business deals, which is not illegal in the slightest. This is what the GOP would say is a political witch hunt. And here's a Republican narrative from Town Hall. If these deals had nothing to do with now President Joe Biden, then why would Chinese businesses make million-dollar deals with Hunter, someone with no business knowledge whatsoever? Foreign companies and governments wanted access to American money and political influence. The government needs to dig deeper into this issue because there's no way Joe Biden wasn't in on these shady deals. Washington Post gives us a cynical narrative for this story. The tidal wave of dark money and thorny foreign business dealings has washed over both Democrats and Republicans and has debased American democracy as a whole. Both sides are fully culpable, and both parties have shamefully put U.S. national security at risk. It's time to clean up this mess once and for all. We need a political um, version of a uh, robot vacuum constantly cleaning the floor of the White House. I don't think there are enough political robot vacuums out there to clean up that mess. More robots in politics. <laughs> in our next story, Muharrem Ince withdraws last minute from Turkey's upcoming elections. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Middle East Eye, Guardian, Al Jazeera, NBC, and Politico. Just days before Turkey's Sunday elections, presidential candidate Muharrem Ince announced he was dropping out of the race in a move that many believe will benefit President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's main challenger, Kemal Kilikdarglu. Ince was one of the four candidates on the presidential ballot, but he was never considered a legitimate threat to win the office, with polls showing his support hovering around 2-4%. to His name will still remain on the ballot since most have already been printed. Ince ran for president in 2018, losing to Erdogan as a member of Kilik Darglu's Republican People's Party, or CHP. After twice failing to become CHP chair, Ince formed his breakaway Homeland Party in 2021. His withdrawal from the razor-tight race came amid an alleged smear campaign that included a fake video of the politician having sex with an unknown woman. The Homeland Party founder was also accused of being on the, quote, palace payroll and running in order to siphon votes from Erdogan's competition. Ince didn't endorse any remaining presidential candidates, but polls indicate most of his supporters will defect to Kilik Darglu, who is polling at 49.3% compared to Erdogan's 43.7% in a recent Conda poll. This is important because a candidate must win 50% of the vote to avoid a runoff election. If the candidates fail to receive 50% or more of the vote, the runoff election will be held on May 28th. This election is Erdogan's toughest election matchup, and a Kilik Darglu victory will end his 20 years of rule. Thank you, Eric. We'll begin this round of spins with a narrative A from the Turkish Minute. Ince made the right decision to withdraw from Sunday's crucial presidential election. He knows how important this race is for the future of Turkey, and he seems to be putting grudges aside for the greater good. Ince withstood false attacks and acted with grace amid a slanderous campaign. This move will be a major boon for Kılıç Darolu in this election and for Turkey. Daily Sabah gives us narrative B. Ince's withdrawal from the race comes at a very peculiar time with the election just days away, as he deals with multiple scandals. He wasn't a popular candidate, and people on both sides of the political aisle had negative feelings toward him. It's likely that he decided to try to save face by withdrawing his candidacy to avoid taking any votes away from Erdogan's opposition. 
And the nerds are at it again from the Metaculous Prediction community, saying there is a 60% chance Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu will win the 2023 presidential election in Turkey. Nicaragua orders a closure of the Red Cross. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Washington Post, ABC News, The Associated Press, and The Argus. On Wednesday, Nicaraguan lawmakers voted to dissolve the local branch of the Red Cross, a nonprofit humanitarian organization, as part of an alleged clampdown on groups seen as hostile to the government of Daniel Ortega. The National Assembly voted to shut down the Nicaraguan Red Cross, accusing it of attacks on peace and stability during anti-government demonstrations in 2018. The local Red Cross says it merely helped injured demonstrators. The Nicaraguan legislature, dominated by Daniel Ortega's Sandinista party, has ordered the country's health department to create a new Red Cross by seizing their properties. The current Red Cross was founded in 1958 and is largely funded by domestic donations. Human rights groups estimate that during the government's crackdown on protests in 2018, 355 people were killed and as many as 2,000 were injured. Since the crackdown, the government has reportedly jailed or exiled almost all of the country's organized opposition and outlawed or closed down more than 3,000 civic groups and non-governmental organizations. Meanwhile, President Ortega has accused civic groups and opposition activists of working with foreign interests in an attempt to overturn his government. Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. The pro-establishment narrative is our first spin and it's coming from Politico. Nicaragua is a dictatorship and emblematic of a broader trend of democratic backsliding across Latin America that likely spells trouble to the U.S. in the form of political upheaval and increased migration. The Ortega-Murillo regime continuously dishonors past commitments to democracy, and shutting down civil society is an act of an increasingly paranoid and corrupt government. And here's an establishment critical narrative from BBC. Ortega has more than one reason not to trust the U.S. and the U.S.-backed opposition. As the leader of Nicaragua's left-wing Sandinista revolution, Ortega brought down the dictator Anastasio Somoza Garcia and the then-U.S.-sponsored rebels, the Contras, who tried to block his move into legitimate power. The impact of the Contra War and subsequent U.S. sanctions has made the economic reconstruction of Nicaragua impossible. In our next story, a Texas Black Lives Matter protest shooter has been sentenced. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, BBC News, the Texas Tribune, Associated Press, USA Today, and Reuters. U.S. Army Sergeant Daniel Perry has been sentenced to 25 years in prison for the murder of Garrett Foster at a Black Lives Matter demonstration in Austin, Texas in 2020. The defense had requested a sentence of 10 years because of Perry's personal circumstances. On July 25, 2020, Perry, an Uber driver, turned onto a street during a Black Lives Matter demonstration and ran a red light before stopping his vehicle. Foster, carrying a legal rifle, was among multiple protesters who approached the vehicle, at which point authorities claim Perry rolled down his window and shot Foster five times before driving off and calling 911. Foster attended the July 25th protest while Perry was driving. Per investigators, Perry stopped and honked at the protesters. Seconds later, he drove his car into the crowd, according to the police. Both Perry and Foster are white men. 
Text messages and social media posts excluded from the trial but revealed at sentencing showed Perry expressing a desire to shoot looters and compare BLM protesters to animals at the zoo. The defense asked the judge to take into consideration his 10 years of military service and testimony from a forensic psychologist who diagnosed Perry with post-traumatic stress disorder and other conditions. Conservative commentators have maintained that Perry acted in self-defense, with Texas Governor Greg Abbott promising to pardon Perry as soon as it hits my desk. And high-profile right-wing figures from Tucker Carlson to Kyle Rittenhouse arguing in his defense. Abbott cannot issue a pardon without a recommendation from the State Board of Pardons and Paroles, whose members he appoints. Abbott stated that Perry's actions were justified under Texas's Stand Your Ground laws and could not be abrogated by a, quote, jury or progressive district attorney. Perry's lawyers are appealing the conviction and cooperating with the state pardon procedure. Those were the facts, and here are the politically opposed spins. And we'll start with a Democratic narrative from Texas Monthly. Daniel Perry is a violent man who overtly fantasized about shooting peaceful protesters. Although the evidence of his guilt is overwhelming, as a conviction affirmed, conservatives are using him as a political prop to justify vigilante justice and their animus against those protesting for civil rights. Abbott pardoning Perry would trample on the rule of law and further show that the GOP's commitment to law and order is wholly fraudulent. And we counter that with a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. A Democratic district attorney subjected Daniel Perry to legal hell to make an example out of anyone who challenges the narrative of, quote, peaceful BLM protests. Perry had mere seconds to react in a life-or-death situation, and the attorney general is more concerned about protecting the rights of a lawless mob than those of a law-abiding citizen. The right to self-defense is inalienable, and Abbott needs to step in to untangle this miscarriage of justice against an innocent man. A recent report says 71 million people are internally displaced by war and disasters worldwide. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Washington Post, ABC News, and Reuters. According to the Geneva-based Internal Displacement Monitoring Center on Thursday, the number of people internally displaced by conflicts and natural disasters has risen 20 percent since 2021, hitting a record high of 71 million people fleeing in search of safety and shelter in 2022. The nonprofit's Secretary General Jan Egeland has said the global food crisis worsened by the war in Ukraine, mixed with natural disasters and the ongoing effects of the pandemic, created a perfect storm. Increases in displacement due to war include 5.9 million people forced to move inside Ukraine because of Russia, which brought the total to 62 million. In Syria, 6.8 million were displaced by conflict after more than a decade of civil war. Most uprooting last year was due to natural disasters such as floods, droughts, and landslides, with Egland adding that these phenomena combined to aggravate people's pre-existing vulnerabilities and inequalities, triggering displacement on a scale never seen before. The nonprofit said the La Nina weather pattern, which continued for a third consecutive year last year, contributed to record levels of flood displacements in Pakistan, Nigeria, and Brazil, and the worst drought on record in Somalia, Kenya, and Ethiopia. Nearly 75% of the world's internally displaced people live in 10 countries, including Syria, Afghanistan, Ukraine, Sudan, and the Democratic Republic of Congo with the report saying the trend hasn't slowed this year. 
Due to the current conflict between rival military forces in Sudan, 700,000 have already been displaced. Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. Military conflicts, droughts, and poverty have wreaked havoc on the most vulnerable countries in the world, and the problem is only getting worse. It is up to individual governments to find peaceful solutions to war and the global community as a whole, to join hands to find solutions to both climate change and the dangerous migration routes taken by refugees. This complex global issue must be dealt with through multifaceted plans of action led by the international community collaborating together. And an establishment critical narrative from American University. Since launching its so-called War on Terror, the U.S. government has ignited devastating and unnecessary wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, the Philippines, Libya, and Syria. Furthermore, the estimated 37 million displacements are actually a lowball if you include the U.S.-backed rebel groups in Syria. U.S. military hegemony bears a great deal of responsibility for global displacement. And we have our final nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. It says there's a 50% chance that at least 182,000 refugees will be admitted to the U.S. through 2024. That's a lot of refugees. It's getting crowded in here, Eric, but that's okay. We got plenty of room. Come on in, everyone. <laughs> that's right. Welcome to America. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, May 12th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Melissa Topshire, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.